You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. My name is Meg McCabe, and I'm so excited to have you join me today for the first episode in which I have a special guest with me. And today's guest is named Talia Chikele. She is a registered dietitian and nutritionist based in London. She's actually from Australia, so you will get a lovely accent in this interview. And she is a specialist in eating disorder recovery. So I really encourage you to listen to this episode and just soak in all of the knowledge that Talia offers. So without further ado, enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Full and Thriving podcast. I am so excited to have our first guest on today. Her name is Talia Cicchelli. She is a fabulous eating disorder recovery dietitian, and I'm just so excited to have her on the show today. So welcome, Talia. How are you today? Very good. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting and I'm so happy for you that you're starting this podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm honored that you're my first guest. It, I know we've done a live on Instagram in the past and that went so well. I thought you would have been the perfect person to start. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we really dive into um, our topic today, which I want to talk a lot about weight gain, weight restoration, and you know, what that looks with those in eating disorder recovery. I wanted to hear a little bit about your background and how you became an eating disorder dietitian. Yeah, great. So I, um, yes, I'm a registered dietitian and I specialize in eating disorders. I'm based in uh, London, but I'm from Australia. So it's a a bit confusing. Um, And I... I just fell into eating disorders. So I was working as a pediatric dietitian about seven years ago. And um, yeah, the first day that I started, I got allocated the um, the ward that had um, eating disorder patients on it. And I was a bit anxious at first to be working in, in that area, but I absolutely loved it. And I haven't looked back and now it's, yeah, it's the area that I specialize in. So I work part-time on an eating eating disorders inpatient unit. And then I also work part-time as a freelance dietitian. So working at the Retrition Clinic in London, uh, seeing um, clients one-to-one. Amazing. I couldn't imagine being a newly registered dietitian and thinking, you know, I'm getting in this to do the typical dietitian stuff and then get getting thrown into the eating disorder recovery ward. What was that like for you? Like what was going through your head? 
I think I was I was quite nervous because as a new graduate dietitian, you know, I was only a couple of years out. It's an area that you don't receive much training in um, because as you would know, to work in the field of eating disorders, it's not really about the food. Um, so as a dietitian, a lot of the work that I do is actually counselling. Um, so it's like you're putting on a different dietitian's hat and that's something that I had to learn and something that I had to learn very quickly. Um, yeah, so it was a steep learning curve at first, but I think that's the best way to learn. I completely agree. I always learn by just throwing myself into the mix. Yeah. Um, so you didn't have, they didn't give you any training. You just had to kind of pick things up while you were learning firsthand in that unit. Yeah. So we had at university, we had one lecture on eating disorders, which is by no means enough. Um, and I think for a lot of dietitians and nutritionists that work in the area, it is something that you do after the first few years that you graduate. Uh, but yeah, I did just, you know, as a dietitian, we have to um, do professional development and I focused that solely on eating disorders. So I did further training in cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing and family-based therapy and all of those sorts of things to make sure that I could continue to gain knowledge in the area and improve my counseling skills. That's so exciting because I feel like you don't expect to have that counselor hat. No, definitely not. Yeah, I think that's why one of, you know, one of the reasons why I really like the area is because it's not your, um, your standard clinical dietetic role. Mm -hmm. It's much more creative, especially on the eating disorders unit where I'm running cooking groups and I'm going out to restaurants and eating with the patients and running a nutrition group. Like it's, it's a lot more diverse than being on a general hospital ward. Yeah, I think that is very interesting for those who don't know too much about dietitians and then they're new to recovery knowing that they're um, dietitians out there with that counseling training is amazing you know really helpful so really cool well I love hearing about that and you're you have your own private practice on the side as well Yes, yeah. So I um, consult at the Retrition Clinic. Um, so yeah, that's that's part of some of the freelance work that I do, and I I enjoy it so much. I love because I guess at the hospital you don't get to follow people for a very long time. So working in that outpatient setting. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been working with some people for up to a year now, so you really get to see the changes. Um, and what an amazing like impact it has on people's quality of life when they when they work towards recovery. Wow. So that kind of brings me to my first question. And I want to talk about this because it's one of our first episodes, just kind of like the weight restoration process. What does that look like from a dietitian standpoint? And how does it work? Like um, if someone comes to you with, an, say, an extremely restrictive diet, and they're pretty underweight. I mean, I know people with anorexia don't have to be underweight, but say they have to start that process. How does that work and what does it look like? Yeah, so it's going to be different for everyone depending on, I guess, um, how restrictive their eating disorder is, if they're engaging in any other behaviours, so compensatory behaviours like purging or laxative abuse, excessive exercise, um, and 
it's going to also differ depending on um, their medical and physical risks. So, um, you know, as you said, it doesn't necessarily be that they have to be an extremely low BMI. Someone can be at medical risk, um, you know, even within a healthy weight range, depending on how restrictive their diet is, the degree of weight loss and compensatory behaviours that they're engaging in, which can have an impact on things like your electrolytes, um, heart rate, blood pressure, body temperature. For some people, um, I guess, you know, part of my dietetic assessment is that I have to assess if they're at risk of what we call refeeding syndrome. Um, so refeeding syndrome can occur when someone starts to eat um, particularly carbohydrates and start to normalise their diet again. And what can happen is that the body shifts from breaking down muscles and using that protein for energy and starting to use carbohydrate as a fuel source again. And that shift from going from proteins and fats to carbohydrate means that the nutrients that help carbohydrates break down, so mostly um, nutrients like phosphate, potassium, magnesium, calcium, are being used to help to break down carbohydrates so there's not as much left for other bodily functions like muscle contraction um, and your, you know, heart beating and those sorts of things. So mm -hmm. that's one of the first things that I need to assess someone's risk of and then it's it's getting people to eat more and that's often really difficult um, but it's small steps um, you know uh, one of the acronyms I'd like to use which was actually developed by an Australian dietitian is called RAVES um, so R-A-V-E-S and it stands for regularity adequacy variety uh, eating socially and then spontaneity. So the first step to weight restoration is getting someone to eat those three meals and three snacks a day and then building up on the volume mm. and the variety and, you know, working your way down that, that list. I love that. So raves is a consecutive list. So R is step one. Rest, um, it was, what was R again? Regularity. <laughs> Regularity. Yeah. Okay, so eating regularly. I love that. I haven't heard that acronym before, but it's a nice way to think about things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's what I try and explain to people. That's sort of the steps you need to do in order to normalize your eating behaviors. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So as far as um, meal plans go, do you yeah. find that those are essential to the weight restoration process? Um, and can people create their own or do you suggest that they go to a dietitian? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely suggest going to a dietitian primarily because of that risk of refeeding syndrome. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen is, um, you know, I've, I've had experience working with people who have gone to their GP and the GP has said to them that they need to eat more in order to avoid going into something like an inpatient setting and they end up binging and that can actually put them they can put themselves at a huge um, risk of medical complications um, because they're not aware of their risk of refeeding syndrome. So it's really important if you are um, restricting your intake and engaging in compensatory behaviours to go and seek advice from a professional trained in eating disorders. Um, I generally do use meal plans for my clients. It's not something that I would use for anyone that I see that doesn't have an eating disorder. Um, but I find that due to the, you know, the 
rigid nature of eating disorders um, and that medical risk, it's really helpful to have that guideline at first. Um, so working off a meal plan, it also just ensures safety. Um, mm -hmm. Again, from that, that medical risk, knowing how much someone is having and the types of nutrients that they might be, be getting and then working to build on that meal plan and then once weight is restored, you can look at moving off the meal plan, normalising eating behaviour. So that's when we you know, sort of refer to the term intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. um, so it is a stepwise approach. Okay. Yeah, I always... I like it when people come to work with me and they are working with a dietitian like you because they have that meal plan. I always feel better yeah. working with them if they have something in place, if that's the, the nature of their eating disorder and it's clear that they need a, need a meal plan. That's actually a really good question. How do you make that determination? Like how might someone listening know whether or not a meal plan is a good choice for them? Yeah, because, yeah, I, I guess that's a good point is that this is, I find that it's usually helpful for restrictive eating disorders um, for people that are experiencing um, binge eating or disordered eating. We may not need to use a meal plan, um, but I would talk about that regularity of eating. So there's three meals, three snacks every day, um, eating every two to three hours approximately. Um, so I guess it, it really comes down to what's going to work for an individual. Yeah, I think most people that I've worked with that have um, suffered from a restrictive eating disorder actually want a, a meal plan just for that safety and that guidance yeah. when they're coming out. There are several people who reach out to me saying, I have lost total intuition around food, total like autonomy around food. I don't even know where to start. I don't know what to eat, how much to eat, when to eat, like all of the signals that we get from um, our diet culture around us, like confuses everyone so yeah. much, especially if you're just that sensitive person who's taking in all that information and trying to make the right decision for maybe like quote your health or like quote your weight loss. And then you're just totally lost. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out too that when we're referring to a meal plan, it's not your seven day, here's your recipe and meal idea sort of plan. It's actually more just an example of what to eat in a day. I love that. That's a really good distinction because it is, it's just a structure. It's a framework. Yeah. Yes. And yes. it's kind of like a template, right? Like, yeah, exactly. I, I like thinking of it that way because it, it's not like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go on a meal plan and I get these like exclusive food network type recipes sent to me by my dietitian. This is something that has a lot of room for flexibility. Yes. Yes, definitely. Because we don't want it to be so rigid because that's obviously colluding with the eating disorder. Yeah. I did not have a meal plan because I had more of like a chaotic relationship mm. with food. I, I remember feeling like rigidity. Like I remember going to a dietitian and her like trying to get me on some sort of meal plan and I could not like wrap my head around it because it felt even, it felt super rigid. Yes. Yeah. So it really depends where you're coming from, what stage you're at in the process of weight restoration or recovery or you know, where your relationship with food is, that's going to determine whether you would benefit from one or not. Yeah. And I know you get this question a lot, but I always like wonder about 
about this, but how is there a way that you can gain weight in a healthy way? In quotes, I know I hate using the word healthy because it kind of is linked to morality and right versus wrong. Yeah. But is there a way that people can gain weight in a healthy way? Or do you feel as though it's a process of kind of just losing control and being okay with that? And yeah. what do you think? So that's a question I get asked all the time. And I think that's coming from a place of sort of fear and anxiety about eating your high sugar, high fat foods. Mm -hmm. So people want reassurance that they can recover from an eating disorder without ever touching these foods. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's not normalizing your eating behavior. That's still avoiding, um, you know, foods that can be part of a balanced diet. Um, so I think, you know, healthy, the healthy way to gain weight is actually to, um, to normalize your eating behavior. And that would be challenging, you know, including all of your different food groups, challenging your um, fear foods and challenging your dietary rules and behaviors. I, I couldn't agree more. I feel like that, that fear of, or that need to gain weight in a healthy way, it definitely is linked to kind of those eating disorder rules you have embedded in your brain. Like, I wanna, I can't eat sugar, I can't eat fat, I can't have a ton of carbs, but I wanna recover. Yes, it's like yeah. really hard, you can't have competing interests. Yeah. You have to be completely aligned with your choice to recover and recovery involves reincorporating all of those food groups back into your diet in a balanced way. Yeah, definitely. So, well, I'm glad that um, you were able to answer that because I know that's something people are always wondering. Do you find that um, people, when they do start gaining weight, what is that like as a dietitian? Do you find they most collectively are usually very scared of that process or um, just, I know everyone's different, but how does that usually look on your end? Yeah, it's usually it's quite distressing mm -hmm. for um, for the people that I work with. And I think the initial first few weeks are the most anxiety provoking because when you step on that scale, often what you see is a jump in the number, quite a rapid jump. So um, we're talking two to three kilos. I'm forgetting if you're working in pounds or not, but two to three kilos <laughs> you know, within the first week, um, which, you know, eating disorder will just straight away be like, oh, it's fat, it's fat, you've just gained fat. Um, but we know that when someone is on a restrictive diet, what they're actually doing is depleting their um, stores of carbohydrate, which is, which is what we call glycogen. And when glycogen is stored in the body for every one molecule of glycogen, it attracts three molecules of water, so it quadruples its weight. So when someone is starting the weight restoration process and they're eating carbohydrate foods again, and that's being stored in their body as glycogen, so that's stored in their muscles and their liver, um, that will pull with it that extra water weight. So what you're seeing when you're stepping on the scale, those first couple of weigh-ins is actually just fluid shift in your body rehydrating itself. I think that's so valuable to remind yourself if you're going through that process and seeing the scale jump out, jump up, especially within those first few weeks of like eating carbs again, you know, of course 
I'm thinking back to my eating disorder and I would have still been probably scared to know that there was water like being retained, you know, cause you've got that disordered, but yeah. it isn't, it isn't all, all fat. And I think it's helpful for people to know that. And even just those who are stuck in that dieting mindset, if you're yeah. weighing yourself every day, like your, your weight's going to go up and down depending on what you ate, whether or not you went to the bathroom, like there's so much variation for that weight range you you end up in yeah definitely so that's why we would never encourage anyone to be weighing themselves once a day multiple times a day because all you're capturing is just natural shifts in your weight from fluids from hormones i i love that point because i remember weighing myself every day at least once a day looking at the scale and then my emotions and my value as a person was attached to that number that day. So if it was lower, I was like, I'm a boss. Like, yes, this is great. Like I, I now have permission to have a good day. That was like, it gave me permission to feel good. And then the next day, whether or not I was, you know, restricting or whatever, if that went up, you know, I would feel terrible, like heartbroken, kind of depressed, feeling like I need to make up for that weight. And I love that you're reminding everyone that that's not necessarily fat. That is just your day-to-day fluctuations of hormones, water retention, um, all those different parts of your body that need room for variation. Your body is not going to be the same every single day. Yeah, exactly. So even for someone that's within a healthy weight range, their weight will, you know, change up to two or three kilos within a day or across a week. So it is extremely normal. And as females as well, we have to remember that when we're menstruating, our hormone levels change and we actually do retain some water around that time of the month. Very valuable to remember. So what do you do with, because I see this sometimes, what do you do with clients who are kind of cheating on their on their meal plan or do you have clients who lie to you and tell you they're eating but there's not any signs that they're actually eating their meal plan how do you work with people who are trying to they want to recover but there's that large part of them that really doesn't want to do the work and actually eat the food yeah so we it it's common I always just you know say eating disorder can be so sneaky and it can get people to do you know lots of different things whether that be um you know falsifying their weight or um yeah lying about their meal plan um but at the end of the day you know we can only work with what we've got and the motivation levels that we've got at that point in time so when I see someone come in and they're very ambivalent because everyone who's recovering is going to be ambivalent about recovery um, so it's it's really important to focus on the why so you know as a dietitian I would be um, you know doing lots of sort of motivational um, activities and counseling around it's, it's about building up that person's life outside of their eating disorder Mm, yeah, yes. so that would be the focus so sometimes you know even during the weight restoration process there might be times that weight plateaus um or it might 
you might lose weight. It's not a linear process. It will be up, down, backwards, forwards, all over the, you know, it's just like a, a squiggle sometimes. Um, <laughs> so we have to work with that and we have to keep reflecting back on that the reason why someone might choose to recover. I always use that as a tool as well. If someone has a week or two where they're totally set back, we go right back to the why. And that actually really does make a difference. Yeah. Just imagining your life beyond your eating disorder. Who are you without your eating disorder? If you weren't obsessing over food, what would you be spending your cognitive energy on instead? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one of the activities that I really like to do is sort of projecting into the future and thinking about, you know, in five, 10 years time, imagining your life with an eating disorder and then also imagining it if you had recovered and using that to really think Mm -hmm. about what, what you want. Um, What do you want to achieve in life? I I actually love that kind of comparison model. Like, okay, if you keep your eating disorder for the next 10 years, how is it going to look differently from your life if you choose to recover now? And you miss out on, I mean, so much richness of life if you're focused on something like food for 10 years straight. You know, it's time to really break free and let yourself connect with what your inner self, your healthy self really wants life to be all about. Yeah, definitely. And I think what you've just said there, I love to use, you know, helping healthy self and eating disorder self self and really strengthening that healthy self. Yeah. I, I think that is key to recovery. Like that is something I'll spend weeks on. It was like working how to strengthen that healthy self because it is, a kind of a power struggle for a while between your eating disorder self and your healthy self and strengthening that healthy self so that um, it can take on those eating disorder thoughts in a, in a way where you're not acting on those eating disorder thoughts, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. I mean, in regards to you know, sort of the original question about what I would do, it's, it's really just making small changes Um, You know, it's no point, there's no point telling someone, okay, we're going to get you to have three meals today, even if you've just been having an apple or, um, you know, a piece of bread. It's it's working with the client to, you know, to to see what they're willing to, to try. And it's, I really talk about it like being an experiment. So just we're yeah. committing to this one-week experiment. You know, we're going to try X, Y, Z and just see what happens because you, you know, you know how to lose weight. You know how to live with your eating disorder. You can always go back to that. And I think that's always helpful when people are in a place of fear to yeah. know that when you make these tra- changes, they don't have to be permanent. You just have to approach them with a sense of curiosity and kind of like an observational stance. Like this is an observational study for a week. I'm going to see, okay, if I have breakfast every day instead of skipping it, how am I going to, um, how is my energy going to change? How is my 
thought processing going to change? Is my attitude going to be different? How will my social life change or not? And you just kind of have to see what the small changes do and fingers crossed. And most likely you will notice some positive changes related to those areas of your life. And those seeing those results in a small way can really increase motivation. Yes. Yes, definitely. Um, one thing I wanted to bring it back to, because I know this is something you are, you like to chat about is, so we were talking about long-term, like people have a choice. You can live the next five, 10 years with your eating disorder. You can choose to recover. You know, if someone decides, you know, I want to hold on to my eating disorder for the next five, 10 years, what are some consequences, like health consequences that could happen down the road? Yeah. So there's, I, I mean, it's going to be so many. <laughs> so, there's so many because eating disorders affect, you know, every single bodily system. Um, it, it does depend on the degree of restriction, your weight, what compensatory behaviours you may be engaging in. Um, but, you know, specifically if you are at a lower BI, um, BMI or if you're engaging in behaviours like purging um, or excessive exercise, then we've got to think about the risk factors to things like your bone health, um, mm -hmm. especially if you're a woman and you're not menstruating. Um, so that's one of the biggest ones because you cannot reverse the impact the eating disorder has on your bone health and the risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis is, is really high for people that um, are underweight um, and aren't menstruating. Um, so your reproductive health is, is again, um, one of the risk factors. Um, so it can affect your, you know, your fertility in the long run. Um, and then we have things like your, you know, your cardiac function, um, your digestion. Um, so, you know, people who have um, an active eating disorder or a lived experience of eating disorder can still experience um, digestive issues like constipation, diarrhea, um, you can end up becoming intolerant to foods as well just due to the years or months um, that the gut has been undernourished, so difficulty absorbing food um, and the rate at which digestion occurs. So your gut can end up being quite sluggish. Um, and if you're someone that's abusing laxatives, that can have a long-term impact and really damage how your gut works. Um, and it's not to, to scare people, but there are people who have abused laxatives to the point that they have to actually get sections of their bowel removed and, um, and get a, a stoma created. So it can be quite significant. Um, and one of the... Um, for people that don't know, I would highly recommend doing some reading about the Ansel Keys Starvation Study or the Minnesota Study, because um, from that study, so that was back in the 1940s, um, we, you know, we learned about a lot of the physical and psychological um, risk factors for someone that is in a starved state. And that's not just, you know, underweight, you can be 
um, classed within a healthy weight range or overweight or even obese, and you can still be putting your body at risk just from not providing it with enough nutrition. Wow. Do you, could you summarize the, um, the main findings of those studies, or at least maybe the, the one that's coming to mind right now? Yeah, so the starvation study, um, for those that don't know, was conducted in the 1940s um, on a group of men and they underwent a, um, a period of semi-starvation, so a six-month semi-starvation period. And during that time, their physical and psychological health was monitored. And um, in terms of their psychological health, some of the impact. Well, some, yeah, some of the findings were um, the change in their um, sort of their emotional state, so feeling depressed, highly anxious. Um, there was uh, a lack of sex drive. Um, people, the participants started to become very isolated, which we know is what happens in eating disorders as well. Um, and then the, the physical impact, just some of the, the main ones would be to cardiac function, um, so reduced rate in heart rate, blood pressure, body temperature, um, the effect on your, meta yeah, on your metabolic rate, so your metabolic rate slowing down as a way of conserving energy, which then shuts off um, other bodily systems that aren't of a priority like your um, like menstruation for females. That's not to say that men's sexual, um, sexual health isn't impacted either. And that obsessiveness with foods, so when we talk about cognition, we know that in the study, the men became um, very obsessed with food. So they, you know, there were reports of dreaming about food, thinking about it, looking up recipes. Um, I think one gentleman even took off photos of his family and put up pictures of food in the room that he was staying in. So it's, it's quite extreme, particularly if we think about, you know, these are men in the 1940s where, you know, back then it was mostly a female's role to, you know, to cook and to take care of the food. So, yeah, we know that that's the, the body responding um, and it's that protective mechanism coming, coming in and getting, you know, someone to be quite alert to think about food, to obsess about it is the way the body's trying to get you to find food. So it's that famine response. I love that study. I find it to be so fascinating. I can't believe a group of men agreed to be starved for a period of time. So interesting, yeah. especially back then. Um, such a valuable yeah. study. Incredible findings. I mean, I can completely relate to that cognition impact where you're obsessing with food. I would watch Food Network nonstop. I would um, go to bed excited for my next day because I was thinking about breakfast. And, you know, I wasn't eating much for breakfast, but I was definitely thinking about, you know, and it is just a sign that you are in that famine response and your body's showing you images of food, making you think about food so that you're more likely to go seek it out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And one of the other things that was really interesting in the study that happened is that one of the participants actually ended up binge eating and going from, I think it was like ice cream parlor to ice cream parlor and getting milkshakes or something like that. 
Um, so we see that in eating disorders when people are, you know, restricting their intake and they, yeah, they end up developing those binge eating tendencies. So it's actually, you know, it can be a result of starvation itself, not necessarily the eating disorder. Yeah, I, I definitely threw in, I fell into that binge eating cycle from starting out extremely restrictive. And then I think that's when it gets really scary because you're like, oh my gosh, like this doesn't feel like me. Like my body is seriously taking over. Feels like you're being hijacked. Like, yeah. you're like it's like time to eat and your body just go goes in overdrive and that's where the binge starts. And um, yeah, it's a really, it's not a fun, fun experience. It's definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that is, that is so interesting. Um, anyway, um, before we start wrapping things up, this has just flown by. I wanted to ask you one more question. And basically, it does kind of fall behind that science of, you know, weight gain. And, you know, from a scientific perspective and a dietitian perspective, why do people actually need fat on their bodies? Like if people are listening to this and they're super afraid of gaining weight, we've heard a lot about the consequences of, um, you know, not eating and having a low BMI, you know, why do people need fat on their bodies? Like, why is that important? Yeah. So if, uh, people don't realize how many roles fat actually has to play. Um, so things like, um, you know, so we need fat to help build sex hormones like estrogen and progesterone. Um, fat has a role in providing insulation and protection for our internal organs. So for anyone that is or has experienced being severely underweight, even just sitting down or lying down in bed can be really painful because you don't have that padding to actually protect your bottom from your, you know, from your bones um, or your spine. Um, fat is really important because it holds fat-soluble vitam vitamins, so vitamins A, D, E, and K. So if we aren't eating enough fat, we're not getting uh, adequate amounts of those four fat-soluble um, vitamins. It acts as an energy store. Um, our brain is about 60% fat. So just like we need to eat protein for our muscles to regenerate, we need to ensure that we're getting adequate amounts of fats, in particular omega-3 fatty acids, to help with our brain health as well and to maximize that. Um, fat is needed for healthy hair, skin, and nails. So often in eating disorders, you know, it's a combination of not getting enough energy, but also not getting enough fat. Um, people's hair becomes very dry, it breaks easily, it can fall out, nails become quite brittle. So we need fats for all of those processes as well. Um, and it's also, you know, fat also helps to signal or to tell our, our brain that we're getting full. So it's directly linked in with some of our hunger and fullness hormones. So mm. without fat, you're not actually feeling satiated. Um, and it comes down to the mouthfeel as well. So fat, when we eat foods that have fat, it, it sort of leaves a particular coating in our mouth that sends mm -hmm. us to the brain that, yeah, that we're, we're getting enough of the right nutrients. Wow, that is 
all so interesting because nobody talks about the benefits of eating fat and having fat on your body. Um, and it's amazing too, the, the point about hair, skin and nails, like all of us, you know, kind of fall into that eating disorder trap and like fear of fatness because we think, Oh, it's, I'm not going to be beautiful anymore. I want to, I want to be beautiful, quote unquote, meeting the standard of beauty. So I want to lose weight. But at the end of the day, like it, act, eating fat, having more fat on your body helps you have beautiful hair, skin and nails, which is like a huge part of appearance. And, um, I mean, Nobody told me that when I was going through, <laughs> through yeah. what I was going through, you know. Yeah, and when you look at what we call the macronutrient distribution range, so that's, um, you know, a rough recommendation of the um, macronutrients, so protein, carbohydrates, and fats that we need to eat in a day. We actually need to eat similar, like, same if not more fats than protein and i think because at the moment diet culture is yelling at us that we must eat huge amounts of protein to the point that they've developed protein ice cream protein yogurt protein cookies like so we think that we need heaps of protein but actually we don't and we forget about the importance of fat in our diet so true um i think protein is very overhyped at the moment. Yeah. It's important, but it's yeah. glamorized and, you know, linked to diet culture and all of that. Lots of myths I, I feel like are out there related to protein intake and actually how much you need. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show. This has been so much fun um, before I let you go, is there any little nugget of wisdom or anything you'd just like to say to those listening today? I think just to say that if you are recovering from an eating disorder, you're not alone. Um, you know, it affects so many people across the world and there is always hope for recovery. Um, and you are you know, you deserve it and you're worth it. Your, you know, life is worth living and recovery is one of the hardest things you will probably do in your life, but it is completely worth it. I love that. It is, it is so worth it. It's, it's transformational. You take yeah. the things you learn from recovery and it helps you throughout the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, I've spoken to people who have recovered and they've said you know, they wouldn't even you know, take it back because the skills that they've learned and the journey that they were on, sort of, it's a, a journey of self-discovery and they've actually become better people at the other end. Absolutely. I, I resonate with that 100%. And I think everyone who's been recovery, been through it, feels like they emerge with so many more skills and inner knowing and um, intuition and just, I don't know, there's just so much to learn. Everyone listening, if you are interested in working with Talia, Talia, how can they find you? Yeah, so you can um, reach me on Instagram. So my handle is TC Nutrition and my website is www.taliachickelly.com. 
So you can just send me a DM or an email through there and I'll get back to you. Yay. And everyone should definitely follow Talia on Instagram and reach out to her if you need any assistance. She's really amazing. And she's just a wealth of knowledge. As you can all tell, I had her answering some pretty intense questions. So thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate you so much. And I look forward to just always working with you kind of throughout our journeys in this field. Yeah, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to be on your show.